giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Lindsay Christensen, and with us today is Paloma Medina, performance coach, trainer, and owner of 1111 Supply. Paloma, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. So you wear a lot of hats. <laughs> How do you best <laughs> like to describe what you do? It's funny. I mean, I think the main overarching theme is the entrepreneurship side of things. I like starting new things. I like building things. I like doing them from scratch. And within that, there's been a coaching side of the business. There's a training side of the business. And there's also this very new thing to me, which is starting a retail store and doing that side as part of a larger obsession with psychology and science of life improvement. Yeah. How does a retail store fit into the sort of <laughs> coaching and the psychology of work? Yeah. Well, the, a little bit of the backstory is that, you know, when you do those career exercises, when you're like, what other career should I consider or something like that? Since I was, you know, pretty young in my early 20s, I always wrote down that some of my favorite moments in life as far as work was concerned were these little retail moments when I worked in customer service and retail. And when I was thinking of moving back to Portland, I was a trainer, I was a performance coach, mostly in tech, in design and advertising. And I was like, do I keep doing that? Do I do something different? I did this little career exercises again. And I was like, there's retail again. What's my deal with retail? Because retail is considered kind of like low skilled labor. Hmm. It's not very high status at all. And that's the only thing I never liked about it. Also, the pay sucks. <laughs> but the actual act of helping these little microtransactions where you're helping humans to complete strangers, I loved that part of it. And so when I moved back to Portland from New York, I was like, I don't know why. I just want to finally give it a go. I want to see if I could open a store where retail is given the kind of space that I think it should hold, which is that it is actually incredibly skilled labor. Mm -hmm. It requires a high level of emotional intelligence to do it well and authentically. And so I was like, well, what do I sell? Because I'm, I'm a bit of a minimalist myself, so I don't like to just buy stuff. And when I thought about the things that I love most about my current life and my current career, it was the psychology and science of human improvement, team improvement. And so I was like, well, what's the product side of that? Like, is there a product side of that? And I took a few weeks to kind of observe my life and just kind of pay attention to like, how do I interact with the science and the knowledge? And I noticed that I was interacting with a lot of the psychology and the tips that I learned along the way via analog, like office supplies and stationery, hmm. like how I used my calendar to kind of track habit motivation or how I used notebooks to kind of keep me high on the cognitive focus with specific tasks. So I was like, aha, and what it's also hard to find is very accessible and yet very well-designed stationery and office supplies that kind of fit within a general design aesthetic. And so I was like, okay, well, let's see if there's something there, like beautiful office supplies that tell you how to use them for better life improvement. Do you have a philosophy around the act of creating physical notes or maintaining a physical analog calendar? I don't. I think my main philosophy there is experiment with something like a tool or an idea long enough to really give your brain a chance to get the hang of it. And then after that, you get to do whatever you want with that tip. Like, I don't do the bullet journaling method exactly how I think it's designed to be used. I don't do Trello or anything. Like, I pretty much just take a tool and then make it fit me 
And I think that's my overall philosophy also when we interact with our customers and folks who come to our trainings is like, here's a really cool tool or here's a cool way to use this tool based on what your goal is and use it just long enough to get the hang of it and then tweak it. Like there is no purist idea here around how things should be used. So a lot of iteration. And you have a brick and mortar store and an online store? Yeah, we have a budding online store. (laughs) I have to say that the brick and mortar is like, it is why the company was started. I used to do many, many lives ago, I was a kind of installation artist. And I was recently talking to another installation artist. And I realized that that's kind of what I was trying to get away with, (laughs) was building a store that is itself an installation that people can interact with and make their own. I mean, I, I could not think about it from all of the senses. And the store, we've just been open a year. We're about to do our one-year anniversary. Oh, congrats. Thanks. And so now thinking about the online experience, which your customers are asking us for, I'm kind of at a quandary about we could just have a technically like online store and just throw all the stuff up there that we sell in the brick and mortar. But that's not how the brick and mortar was designed. It was designed as an immersive experience. And so I'm really intrigued right now, and I'm talking to a few folks about what are ways that we can simply but still effectively mimic some of that in the online store. Mm -hmm. And so we threw up a few things right now to kind of test a little bit of the UX, but it's really like version 1.0. And we're currently working on version 2.0 with that question in mind, like, what part of the brick and mortar experience can we bring and what part will be unique to the online store? So yeah, question mark. (laughs) Well, now that you say you were an installation artist, I think it makes sense because I did peep a few pictures of the store and it is beautiful. And I was like, thank you. Who did she hire to do this? Or like, what? I, I actually was really interested in how you went about designing it. That's just a part of you, I guess. Yeah, it's a part of my brain that I always daydreamed about and then got to just make real, which is really cool, which is, I think, why I I really relate to the installation art. I guess way of describing the store is that like, you get to think about what do things feel like? What do things smell like? What's the light quality? How does the light quality change? How would a body move through the store? So I, I got to really nerd out about the psychology of retail And like how humans always kind of do the same things in a store, which is fascinating. And be like, well, what part of that do we kind of lean into and leverage? And what part of that do we try to break up and give them a very new thing? Iteration is is really my best friend. We did a pop-up where we had three hours to set it up in this really wonderful space in downtown Portland. A very, very beautiful space right in the middle of like shopping center downtown. And then we had three hours to break it down. And I wanted it to look as close as possible to what I think the brick and mortar would finally look like. This is before, you know, it was just like a, a mm-hmm. little glimpse of an idea. And I think that helped me then build the regular brick and mortar one because you get to iterate and see what works and what doesn't work. But it also meant I had to build things very simply because we had to put them up in three hours. Like everything had to look finished. So a lot of what you see now in the store is actually because I was like, actually the weird quick to build two hour version worked great. Now we just get to make it permanent. Some people walk in and say it feels so light mm. in here or like so open. One, we we built in a lot of kind of negative space into the store. But two, it's because we started kind of thinking about it with very, very literally light fixtures, like light to carry and light to set up. And then it worked. 
Are there any brands that you're looking to for inspiration that do a good job of bridging that gap between the brick and mortar experience and then the online shopping experience and bringing some of that consistency and some of that vibe to the online store? I want to say there are, but I haven't found a lot. There's stores like the pencil store, I think it's called CW in New York. They do this program you can sign up for online. Have you been to the pencil store in, in New York? I have not. It is uh, worth going to. I went to it when it was, I think, in its old location, a tiny little store. And that's pretty much all they sell is pencils, mm-hmm. just pencils. And what I loved is that on their online version, there's a subscription where you essentially get it's like a pencil box every month. And I've met a few people who get the subscription and the anticipation and the love they have for that anticipation feeling is so sweet. Like, I don't know what else to describe it besides sweet. So there's stores like that where I'm like, okay, there's something about the subscription model that's very simple. Like there's not a ton of surprise element, right? Like it's going to be pencils, right? So it's not quite like Birchbox or something. You've really narrowed down, down onto the thing that people love. And then there's a little surprise element that you're building into which pencils it might be. And I like that. There's something about high curation that we want to tap into. So there's other brands like Third Love, which is the bra company. I keep just messing with their online system, <laughs> both the mobile version and the desktop version, around how they walk you through which bra to buy. And I love that level of curation. But it's also kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure I want something where you get to choose your own adventure a little more. So right now we're playing with, there's four major sections in the brick and mortar. There's the organization section, which is like space organization. There's motivation. So like the psychology of that, the psychology of focus and like cognitive power. And then there's time management. And we definitely are going to focus the online store around those four themes, but rather than have them be themes similar to how someone like third love does it. Like what if you start with a problem? If you've tried their their site, they ask you, what are the things that you hate about your bras? <laughs> Which is such a lovely, fascinating way to start a customer relationship. It's like, no, let's talk about bras and what you hate. Like, what doesn't work right now? So I'm a little intrigued about that. That's where we're kind of playing with. Are those themes similar to the ones that emerge in your coaching and, and training work? Yes, that's that's absolutely where they were born. It was... In one-on-one coaching and in team coaching, I first started with doing team performance coaching and moved to one-on-one coaching. And in both, there was these patterns, especially around motivation and focus and then time management, where it was kind of fascinating how just having people say, well, which, which of these three or four do you think is the crux of the problem you're facing? You saw the little light in their eyes be like, oh, it's actually not time management. It's actually that I'm not focused when I finally have a free hour and I'm just all over the place. And you're like, fascinating, cool. You came to me saying that you have a productivity issue, but we got to kind of drill down. So it's definitely a way of helping people when they walk into the store and soon the online store to think about like, is there one of these that you think is the best place to start? Versus just like, there's, here's a huge store of a bunch of stuff that's you know, cute to look at. <laughs> you mentioned in the coaching aspect that you have done a bunch of work with tech companies in the past. Mm-hmm. Is there a certain type of tech company? Is it larger companies, smaller, specific teams within those companies? Most of my experience is with companies of under 1,000, 2,000 employees, 
I've worked with it all, you know, from customer service and customer support to engineering. I feel like I did most of my work and I, I got to know the subtleties of each subculture a lot better with HR and people ops, which is kind of fascinating. It wasn't my original, I didn't feel like a natural fit for my brain <laughs> in the beginning, but then later I was like, oh my gosh, your world is fascinating. <laughs> Two engineers, yeah, computer engineers, I really, really ended up clicking with and c- customer support. It was surprising to me when, when I first started working with um, engineers, I have to say they kind of hated me. I, I would say like 80% hated me, not hated me. Hate is strong. Hate is strong. <laughs> Skeptical, I maybe, my, worried. <laughs> I would say like a, a decent chunk were dismissive, like just straight up dismissive mm, yeah. of, of me. I was in so many ways an outsider to them. So either they were, they kind of were dismissive or they didn't feel seen by me. So they felt wary. Mm-hmm. So maybe skeptical, but I would say skeptical out of like not feeling seen or being concerned that they wouldn't feel seen. And then there were some that were just like open arms, just like, this is fascinating. I want to know more about your work. And so in the beginning, I was like, whoa, this is a tough crowd. (laughs) And a tough crowd in a different way. Before that, I was working in homeless and HIV supporting clinics, like folks who really are low on resources and who themselves as clinics and organizations are incredibly low on resources. And so when they get access to someone like a performance coach, they, for the most part, are like, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) So it's a kind of an easy entry in. And then they kind of push back once you're like, we're going to totally undo everything that you do and put it back together in a new way. Then they get like, whoa, what? <sighs> so there's still a lot of influence and buy-in and kind of psychology that's really helpful to to make sure that you're serving them so that they can serve their patients. In tech, I really did feel like I was it was like two aliens meeting each other with us, with like me and, and engineers. But... One of the things that I didn't use to talk very much about in clinics and healthcare and nonprofits was the psychology and science side of things. For some reason, it didn't resonate like a ton with them. But when I started sharing more about that background with engineers, they, of course, were like, whoa, science, neuroscience, tell me more. And so it became a way to translate these two very subcultures that we were each coming from, was we both understood the power of research and evidence-backed tools and neuroscience. And then after that, we were besties. Best pals. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Pricing Wire. Think about all the time, effort, uncertainty, and everything else that you're investing into what you're building. Pricing Wire has helped more than a thousand software and technology innovators like you take a proactive approach to both discover and get paid what they're truly worth. From early startups to Fortune 500 enterprises, across verticals and around the globe, Pricing Wire delivers easy to understand and actionable recommendations to guide your monetization and pricing strategy. If you want to avoid unnecessary challenges or regrets and prevent missing time-sensitive revenue opportunities, Pricing Wire can help. Just go to pricingwire.com and book a strategy session today. Whether you need to assort your value into offerings, quantify and message your value, select the right pricing metrics, set and change prices, or even decide if usage-based pricing is best for you, Pricing Wire will help you achieve your revenue goals faster and with more confidence. Learn more at pricingwire.com and start making meaningful progress today. Well, it seems like you've mentioned a few things that, that make it seem like you also take an approach that very much comes from a place of design thinking as far as, you know, starting with the problem, constantly iterating. And I'm sure that also, 
you know, engineers feel at home with that kind of language and and those kinds of frameworks? Yes, absolutely. On the healthcare side of things, there's things like continuous quality improvement. That's a whole field. It's essentially engaged with the same set of questions and problems that design thinking is, but not really in a visual way and in a very human and brain friendly way, always. (laughs) I learned some of those things, but I think once I moved to New York for grad school and started hanging out with a bunch of design thinking folks, it was the first time that I was like, whoa, all of a sudden, all these tools that I had from healthcare and performance improvement work there, all of a sudden can apply to so many more industries, thanks to something like design thinking. So definitely helped with that transition into tech quite a bit. So what does an engagement actually look like? With in performance improvement? Yeah. If, you know, you make an agreement with maybe a a manager or HR that you're going to come in and are looking to help with a certain problem. I guess I'm I'm curious about the whole thing. Like what what are you brought in to do? And then how do you go about trying to help? Yeah. Well, the work that I do now in performance improvement is mostly one-on-one coaching. I switched over to that mostly because performance improvement at the team or corporate level is obviously like a huge engagement and something like a retail store, especially this particular retail store, takes up a huge amount of my brain. So that's less now. What you do with a team or rather over the whole company is one of the first things is you do a little bit of design thinking, like set of problems around like, what's the problem? Let me help you understand more the scope, the depth, the width, who it all reaches, why does it matter to you? All that just beginning even before they like sign any contract with you so that you can understand whether or not you actually are the right person. Mm -hmm. If you are the right person, Then the next thing is to essentially do, I mean, you can think of it as a SOW, like a scope of work, but really what I think of it is managing expectations and setting expectations about like how much of what you're currently doing can I like burn to the ground, you know, and just start fresh and which parts will you no matter what not allow me to. And we need to see what the ratio is between what I can't touch and what I can because I like to burn a lot of things to the ground and start fresh. Not all consultants and performance improvement people are like that, but I think it's just the kind of problems that I like doing is when companies are intrigued. By the way, most of the time you don't actually build, like burn anything to the ground. It just feels like it to them. Uh-huh. You're actually working a lot within their systems mostly because humans just transition better if you, you know, if you transition them. But for me as a performance improvement consultant, I knew that I needed to work with executive teams that were a little intrigued and were signing on the dotted line that like, yeah. If need me, we can burn things to the ground. Like we'll collaboratively do that. Mostly so I knew that they weren't going to keep pushing back against any little thing that we thought was was worthwhile. Once you get that and kind of set expectations, then you really just use a lot of design thinking, at least I do, with getting to know the teams and getting to understand all the people that are involved in why that problem is existing or why that goal isn't being met. And then getting to understand at the ground level what people think is actually happening because what executives think is the problem versus what folks on the ground think is the problem tend to be vastly different. And so it's really nice to take time to do that. And then after that, you move them through a series of frameworks about problem solving and iteration, experimentation, you know, hypothesis building, all of those things that are part of design thinking. Then you actually work with the teams to do that. But there's so much work that is involved. I have found to do it well before 
you even start touching anything. And that's usually how it works out best, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound unlike what we do at ThoughtBot when we're talking to a potential client about working together and making sure it's going to be a, a truly collaborative experience where they're open to us coming in and being those consultants who can suggest, you know, the occasional burn yeah. to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> at least be open to it, you know? Yeah. If it's the right thing. If it's the right thing. And usually there are less drastic measures. But as an outsider, I've just learned that something that seems like a small change to us actually feels holy and sacred to them and can't be touched. And so for me, it's better to engage with folks who are like, no, we're ready for, for what needs to get done even if it means sacrificing things that we thought were sacred. Mm -hmm. It usually works out fine. But in one-on-one performance coaching, it's so different. Are the problems you're coming in to solve different? No. You're just getting so much less data in one-on-one coaching. So for example, I could be coaching an executive leader who is like, my team is really disengaged with our work. And they're kind of phoning it in right now. So they want to talk about how to motivate their team. And in one-on-one coaching, you have zero idea what's actually happening with that team because you'll never meet them mm-hmm. versus in a full team or company performance review. You get to actually collect a ton of data so that you can see the animal from all angles. So the real the difference isn't so much the problems that you're tackling. The difference is that in one-on-one coaching, you're really supporting one individual to step up in a new way of leading the team. And you're doing it really just from that angle. And I don't know that one is more effective than the other, honestly. I've seen teams transform when I only had access to one, like a key leader on that team. And I think the difference is that that team never sees you, which is kind of (laughs) cool. They get to see their leader changing and trying Mm -hmm. new things versus you can't become the scapegoat because they never see you as the coach. And you also can't become the savior because they never see you. I don't know how this is for for you and your work, but I found that in performance improvement coaching of teams and companies, they can be very quick to assign you one of those two things. You either the scapegoat and or the savior. You know, and you're really neither. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're really just a coach. But if you're invisible, the leader gets to one get all the credit, which is great because they're the ones who are going to continue working in that company and leading that team. Or two, have to be accountable. And each day have to kind of be accountable to how what things worked and what things didn't work, which is much more helpful for that team since, again, they're going to stay the leader, at least for the time being. So it's cool. I don't have a preference between one or the other work-wise. It's just bandwidth-wise, you can squeeze in one-on-one coaching a lot easier while running a store, while launching an online shop, and while doing corporate trainings. I also, <laughs> we haven't even talked it's about so the equity much. and inclusion work. Yeah, it's it's and equity and inclusion together. work on the side. And equity and inclusion. So I definitely shut down the consulting side of things when I decided to focus on most of the company workshops I, I do now when I bring to companies are around equity and inclusion. And that takes up a lot of my brain. As oh yeah, should. tell me about that. So when I was doing leadership development and one-on-one coaching and all that, when I moved transition over to tech, Within a year, of course, one of the big questions was like, well, will you do an equity and inclusion training? I think at the time they called it, you know, diversity or something like that, diversity training. And I was like, oh, hell no. Like, I don't want to touch that topic. (laughs) That is a can of worms. And I resisted it very much. When was that? Maybe five, six years ago. Okay. And 
I started working with a company as kind of a contractor trainer. And they had on their books, one of the, the workshops they had was diversity and, and inclusion training. And so I was kind of doing their slide deck. And as I did it, I realized like, I am terrified of this topic, but I I actually care so much about it. So way before, you know, healthcare and performance improvement, all of that, I was a very, very, very engaged activist. I was at WTO in Seattle. I was like, I've been tear gassed many times. Like I'm, I was really in it. I was really in it. it. It meant a lot to me. And then I kind of stopped doing a lot of that stuff when I got involved in performance improvement and kind of started having a, a firm paying career and things like that. And so what was cool is getting to do some trainings in diversity and inclusion that someone else had built. It helped me reconnect with what a fervor there is somewhere inside of me for this stuff. And that it was because of that fervor that I was like, I can't touch it because it it is so important mm-hmm. that who am I? Like, how how dare I think that I could possibly teach this topic? So I was like, okay, well, let's take three months. So I, I quit doing that kind of contract, subcontract work. And I was like, I'm going to take three months while I'm developing the idea for the store, the store didn't exist physically yet. While I'm doing that, I'll take three months to dive into if I were to build a 90-minute workshop around these topics, what would I teach? Like what actually is missing from the curriculum that I've seen is out there? And the thing that came up with neuroscience, I was like, oh yeah, the thing I know a lot about actually weirdly is neuroscience and how that affects things like how we think about equity, diversity, inclusion, how those things affect our brain, vice versa. So I tested it with a few companies, especially obviously with with engineers and um, tech folks. It was like a really nice fit. I think getting to understand it more from what's the brain doing versus what are you doing wrong <laughs> was a good start. So here I am three years later. I think I teach like two or three a week right now of that on that topic. So naturally now I want to ask, what is the brain doing? <laughs> but <laughs> I'm not sure if that can fit in a five minute soundbite or I need the 90 minute workshop. So of course I'm going to say you need the 90 minute workshop, but um, good. you're a good founder. Actually I, right. But so just a few weeks ago, I delivered a TEDx talk on this, a 12 minute one that forced me to think about what is if you only get 12 minutes to talk to a few thousand people about this topic, what do you say? And it it was really helpful in that I was like, okay, some important things can be said here. And I think one of the most important things is that we have enough evidence now that the brain categorizes fairness and equity and equality as a core critical need in our lives. And because it categorizes it that way, it is hardwired to always be scanning and scanning for it and trying to protect it. And so I think it is pivotal for all folks to get to know more about this connection, that it's not just like equity and equality isn't a political or ethical conversation. It is a neurological conversation for our brain. It is a core need. And when it's threatened, it means our bodies naturally go into a stress state a healthy body, when faced with inequity, is supposed to go into a physical stress state. And if that continues, now you've got chronic stress. And if you've got chronic stress, you've got long-term health effects. And that, I think, is worth saying like three times over. Like Equality and equity, fairness, is absolutely linked to our long-term physical health, not just our mental health. And it's not just a fun political conversation. It's that too. (laughs) It's also a health conversation. 
then there's like a whole, you know, we could talk more about diversity and inclusion and how different those are for the brain. But that, when I first was kind of reconnecting with that work and preparing for these workshops, I just like sat with that for like three days. All I thought about was like, whoa. So like every time one of my reports in the past flagged something that felt unfair to them, you know, part of my manager brain kind of rolled its eyes and being like, yeah, yeah, tick a number. Like life's unfair, you know? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So I'm not even talking just about like racial and gender equality. Obviously, that's a really good topic. I also mean just when employees are like, whoa, this doesn't feel fair. It does also recontextualize those conversations. It, It did for me in thinking back on them as a manager, being like, whoa, this person's core needs was being threatened in that moment. Mm, So it's a big red flag when someone says that. It's a huge red flag. And it doesn't mean that you do everything that they ask you to do, right? Because as a manager, you're always dealing with sometimes conflicting stakeholders and conflicting requests. But it it changed how I approached those conversations. I wasn't just like, yeah, life's unfair. You know, buck up, buddy. You know, I was like, whoa, yeah, I know that feeling when something is unfair in your world. You can't let it go. Like your brain is wired to not want to let it go. So that's different than me just telling you to like buck up. Yeah, I went to exactly the example that you gave, which is, you know, that feeling of inequity seems like it's highly subjective. It's everyone's perception of how they're being treated. So I imagine it's also important as part of that education to teach folks how to value other people's perception of different situations or or being wronged. Well, empathize with that feeling, first of all, which mm-hmm. changes the tone of the conversation. We're like, yeah, I know what it's like to feel that something important in your world is unfair. You don't have control over it. Like that feeling is awful. And that's a very different tone than being like, yeah, yeah. Anyway. And two, equity is many times subjective. You're right. But in many times, it's absolutely quantifiable. And I think the other part of the thing that I'm I'm starting to venture to share more with companies that I, I think before I was kind of scared to say out loud was like, start measuring it because so much of it is measurable. Equity in many ways is measurable and companies aren't measuring it enough, like nowhere near enough. And so the parts that are subjective, let's keep having those conversations and getting to know what matters most to folks. But all of the stuff that isn't that's actually measurable, such as salary, promotion rates, percentage of leadership levels that are made up by representative numbers of humans from the national or international demographics that you're hiring from, like all of that stuff is super doable. And so a lot of the stuff that I talk about with neuroscience and how it helps explain the role of diversity versus equity versus inclusion in our world, really it's a foundation more and more for me to say, And so let's do the hard work of measuring so that then we can fix it. But usually I need to convince people first around the neuroscience. Like, you know, this isn't just like a cool thing. It's a necessary thing for your employees' brains to perform at their best. So yeah, there's some leaders that just come to me and and just want to say, I've got a hard equity thing on my team that is fuzzy and it's hard to know how to create fairness. Mm -hmm. And then there's other leaders who are like, my teams are asking for salary equity and why don't they just believe us? Like, why don't they have faith in us leaders and saying that there is salary equity? I'm like, well, I don't know. You could just show them numbers. You know? <laughs> like there are ways to show numbers that aren't absolute salary transparency. And so then we have more of the tactical conversations too. From what you've seen, is this more or a bigger issue in the tech world? 
I think I'm probably very much in the tech bubble and not maybe as familiar if these conversations and these issues are being raised in, in other industries as well. I also kind of started the equity and inclusion work from the tech bubble myself. Mm-hmm. And I've been surprised by how many more companies are asking for the training and then receive the training really with open arms. I mean, most of my clients are right now in tech design advertising, but it just keeps expanding. One of the recent requests for trainings came from a, a huge like hardware store. You know, that was like, oh, fascinating. Awesome. Let's do it. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's exciting. And what originally, going back, got you into the psychology and, and neuroscience sort of field? Did you study that in school? Was that always a passion area for you? Or is that something that developed more recently in your uh, adult life? Yeah, it really like coalesced and like kind of firmed up in the past seven years. But um, it's kind of that thing where in hindsight, you're like, oh, you've always been the love of my life. I just (laughs) didn't see it. (laughs) It was like that. It's you. Um, It's always been you. It's always been you. Oh, neuroscience. It's always been you. (laughs) Yeah, it was it's it felt a little silly that I didn't see it earlier. And I think in part, you know, career tracks kind of mess us up, I think, because if you would have asked, you know, like 10-year-old Paloma, do you want to be a neuroscientist? I'd be like, no, thanks. That sounds insanely hard math-wise, and I don't, I'm not into it, which is still very true. But neuropsychology, and I think if you were to show me a series of books that talk about it, I'd be like, oh yeah, I do want to read about this all day. So I think early on, like the first books that I remember checking out by myself at the library, at the public library as a kid, were all on multiple personality disorders. Like what, you know, I was like, I think in third grade and I was like, this is amazing. This is fascinating. Is this real? Um, This is, you know, before the internet. And so I couldn't just like Google that stuff. And then like later I would, I got into like reading people's hands, like palm reading as a kid. Like I think I was in seventh grade and I would charge kids for it, which doesn't see, you're like, what is the connection here? But actually the reason I liked doing it is because I found it fascinating, these kids, essentially micro-expressions, that told me whether I was on the right track or not. And then Mm. later, come to find out, and I was just obsessed with that part of it. I was like, humans give you these tiny clues about what they're most hungry for. And later, I came to learn that it's called micro-expressions. And micro-expressions are both in the domain of psychology, but definitely also of like neuropsychology. So there's all these little things that then later when I became a performance improvement consultant and I was learning things like Six Sigma and Lean, which were very helpful frameworks, but nothing was as helpful as when I might on my own would like nerd out about neuropsychology of team communication. Like then I would pair that with something like Lean and all of a sudden the teams I was supporting and coaching did massively better. So it was always kind of the thing that made whatever I was doing makes sense. And then later on, I just kind of was like, okay, this I validated because the teams that I was coaching were doing so much better than before I was applying the neuropsychology stuff. I guess I gave myself permission to invest a lot of time into it and dive deep. And then later I started working in tech and that's when I was like, oh, y'all are into this? <laughs> cool. Me too. And then it was over. You know, was, that's, Perfect I, was, fit. I was in. Yeah. Are there certain kinds of individuals or roles 
that you're especially keen to work with or maybe when you see an inquiry come through, you get excited about? I mean, when it's a brand that I really respect or that I I hear through the grapevine how happy their employees are, I have to say I get the most excited. I mean, I would say like 80% of the trainings I do at companies are around equity and inclusion topics. In equity and inclusion, especially around tech and design, what the field needs is more companies making progress, like really flipping things on their head, trying something new, taking the risk of looking very badly if it goes wrong so that we can actually have innovation in the field of equity and inclusion. And I'm excited whatever I can do to get a company to start trying vastly different things so that equity and inclusion actually like those needles move for them so that as a field, we learn from that company. Mm -hmm. We need more of that. So whatever I can do, and the best way to have more and more of those positive case studies, what I realized is to actually be talking to companies who already are doing a great job taking care of their employees Mm -hmm. in, in some ways, and thus already are doing innovative things around employee engagement and employee support, because that's where harder ideas around equity and inclusion interventions can actually take root and flourish. So I used to be, when I first got into performance improvement, I was really into like turnaround stories. Like I loved getting a team that was like, had dismal metrics and was just like hated each other and was constantly fight. Like I loved the turnaround story, you know, with equity and inclusion work, I'm like, no, I need to get teams that are so close to actually already have a great foundation for experimenting with tougher, bigger problems like equity and inclusion. I want to hang out with them so that we can kind of push them to the next level and they can be our next successful case studies. I've been thinking a lot about this, actually, because we're trying to do our own equity inclusion things here at ThoughtBot. And I'm on the marketing side of the house for the company and thinking about like what we should be communicating and when. In general, we like being pretty transparent externally around like what we're trying to do and how it's going. But, you know, as as you said earlier, it is such like a big and important topic. It can feel really intimidating to talk about mm. those things. And also, I think, you know, in no way would we ever want to share something that feels like we're bragging or like that we're saying we, you know, we totally nailed something and making sure, you know, by communicating, we're in no way hindering the actual process that we're doing internally. It's a tricky balance, I think. It's a tricky balance. And I think what's hard is it's the same as any other business challenge. Like it's, it's just, it requires strategy, requires a hypothesis about like, if we do A, B will happen and B is the thing we want but it also requires having measurable goals. And I think what's hard is because it feels so loaded politically and ethically loaded, Mm -hmm. companies don't treat it like a business challenge that just requires the exact same formula that they use with other things because it's just so scary and also so huge. But just like any business challenge, you have to focus on something first. So what's been fun is to kind of work with leaders to help them see which parts of the things you already know how to do really well and that you've launched like products and features that you've launched, what was the process you went through to get to that success? And actually let's translate that into equity and inclusion. In the same way, they realize things like, oh yeah, we can't do 40 strategies at once, right? And oh yeah, when we choose one strategy over another, we're gonna piss off employees and customers. 
like that's going to happen. There's going to be someone who's going to be like, I really thought we should have gone with, you know, strategy X. Why did you go with Y? It's like, that's going to happen. And I think the hard part is that culturally, how can we support companies to know that they're not the devil if they choose the wrong strategy around equity and inclusion? They're not. They're simply giving it a go, doing their best, and most importantly, iterating so that the next version is so much better for both employees, for consumers, for customers, clients. So I think a lot of it is as being this outsider in equity and inclusion, giving them permission almost like they don't need it, but they emotionally (laughs) feel like they need it. Neuroscience. Neuroscience. Yeah. Be like, you don't technically need this. Like your prefrontal cortex doesn't need this, but your limbic system does. So here I am giving your limbic system permission to try a thing that it might fail at. And I'm here to tell you it's still worth doing. Just like any other business strategy where you're taking you're going out on a limb, this one's also the same. We can do it together. So I'm excited to do more of that work in the future, especially once the like retail side of things stabilizes, to be able to support really groups of leaders. That's the best way to do this stuff is cohorts of leaders who are like, we're in it to change things, we're in it to try new things, and we're gonna support each other and like be loving to each other through it, because this is gonna get messy. And that's that's the right way to do this work. It's getting a little messy. Well, Paloma, thank you so much for joining me today and, and sharing some of these insights. If folks do want to get in touch with you to either get one-on-one coaching or maybe equity inclusion training, how's the best way to do that? You can um, find out a lot more about our company workshops, for example, through our website, which is 1111supply.com. So that's 1111supply.com. And there's a whole company workshops page there. We're going to be doing more. I'm not taking new clients currently, but in the next few months we might be. So they can definitely reach out to me through the website as well or contact form there. And the online store, look for it in a few months, the 2.0 version. It's currently, there's a little, a few things up there, a few like curated box sets. But yeah, check out the site. There's there's also like a whole blog about where I nerd out really hard on neuroscience. So if you're into this stuff, you might like our blog on there too. That's great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you. And and best of luck with everything. Thank you. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, you can email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at Lindsay3D. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks again to Pricing Wire for sponsoring this episode of Giant Robots. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.